Now it's time for the dedication. There is no indication of how many years have passed from chapter 6, verse 38 in 1 Kings 8, 1. The, the, the months are, we, they, it mentions the month that the temple was being built, and it mentions the month of the dedication, but we, we're not told what year. We're told how many years it was since the Exodus when Solomon began to build the temple, but we're not told what year it is that he dedicated it. We don't know how many years are between these things here, but we definitely know that it's, Solomon is building this later in his life, so there's not like, it's not like years went by. Most scholars think that maybe a month or two went by, depending based on the month. It's like saying he started building the temple in November, or the temple was finished in November and then he dedicated in December. So is that a couple months? Or does he mean like the very next December kind of a thing and it's a year in a couple months? So most scholars believe it's somewhere between a couple months and a year of when the dedication actually happens. But that's not really important or significant. I'm just mentioning that. So then Solomon, chapter 8, verse 1, Solomon convened in Jerusalem, Israel's elders, all the leaders of the Israelite tribes and the families so that they could witness the transferal of the Ark of Yahweh's covenant from the city of David, that is Zion, and all the men of Israel assembled before King Solomon during the festival in the month of Ethium, the seventh month. When all the Israelite, all of Israel's elders had arrived, the priests lifted the Ark, and the priests and the Levites carried the Ark of Yahweh, the tent um, the Ark of Yahweh and the Tent of Meaning and all the holy items in the tent. Now King Solomon and all the Israelites who were assembled with him went on ahead of the Ark and sacrificed more sheep and cattle than be, could be counted or numbered. This one is, in the context of everything we talked about, is this Solomon sacrificing so much because he gets a sacrifice without sacrifice is not a sacrifice? Or is this part of all the showmanship? Or is it a little bit of both? The context here makes you suspect this. The first time when he was making a lot of sacrifices, God immediately came to him and said, ask whatever you want, I'll give to you. So the context seems to be a little bit more God's approval. This is like, who knows? The priest brought the Ark of Yahweh's covenant to its assigned place in the inner sanctuary of the temple and the most holy place under the wings of the cherubs and the cherub's wings extended over the place where the ark sat, and the cherubs overshadowed the ark in its poles. That one right there just bothers me. I've never, ever, anywhere read in the Bible anything overshadowing God. Never seen anything overshadowing God. Never read that. Yes? The only thing I don't understand, you may even help me, is you said... It overshadowed God, but that wasn't God. That was. But it's sim- it symbolically and metaphorically represented God's presence. Think of it this way. I totally agree with you 100%. But let's change the context. Think about it if it said the cherubim completely overshadowed the cross. The cross is not God, but the cross is a symbol of God's love, sacrifice, redemption, and atonement. And if you said the cherubim overshadowed the sacrifice, atonement, and redemption of God, that would be very suspect. So I totally agree with you. It's not God. And that's the whole point. They're, they're starting to think that this is God's house. And I totally agree with you. What I just meant was more metaphorically that symbol of that kind of a thing. So yes, totally amen, agree with you. Just meant it more in a symbol, symbolic kind of way. 
Because that's what the ark is. The ark is the, because remember the ark is the atonement seed. The ark is supposed to be the presence of God and the people's sins and they pour the blood on it to cover the sins of the people so that God can come down and dwell with them. So the ark is our version of the cross. Because where we put Christ on the cross, they put the blood of the goat on the ark of the covenant. They would be that equivalent. Very good question. God already commanded cherubim to be carved on top of the Ark of the Covenant, yet having the oxen was considered a violation of the graven images law, and the giant cherubim that Solomon built was a violation of the law, of the graven images law, then why did God allow two little cherubim on the Ark? And wouldn't that be a violation? And that bothered me for a very long time, but the angels that were carved on the Ark were, one, prescribed by God. That's a big issue right there. And the same way that God says don't kill, but if he tells you to go kill the canines, it's okay because we kill for selfish autonomy. He chose to kill for righteous judgment. And so most of the laws that are put on us is because we're screwed up and emotional and we're selfish. But we have no right to put the law back on him. Now, I'm not saying that God has the right to do whatever he wants like willy-nilly, but in a way, he does. And the difference is, he has the right to do whatever he wants because he's good. And everything he does is good. And so whatever he does is law. Whatever he does is righteous. So in that way, he can do whatever he wants because he will never violate his character. And so when he prescribes this image to be carved, he has a reason that he knows that will actually benefit the entire world. Or when I carve a graven image, I have a reason that will benefit me and me alone, and it usually hurts me, or it hurts other people, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a big difference between God saying, do this, and me and my willy-nilly emotional selfish autonomy saying, I want to do this. Because he's considering all of humanity and all of history, where I'm only considering me. And so that's a big difference. The other one, too, is he didn't go all, like, supersized on it either. The whole point of the ark was to represent the sins of the people. And once a year, they would come in and pour the blood of an animal over the ark so that the God would not see the broken Ten Commandments, the budded staff of Aaron, and the jar of manna that represented their sins anymore. He would see the blood of the animal, and he would dwell with them. And the angels symbolically represented the barrier between God and humanity. So by the fact that they were on the Ark of the Covenant, God was, we couldn't come into his presence because angels were between us. We've talked about that before, where angels are always between you and God. The only way you can get into God's presence is if you're sinless, which you're not, the blood of Christ, which they don't have yet, or angels around you. So the angels actually weren't meant to be worshipped. They weren't meant to represent God in any kind of way. They were actually meant to represent our separation from God. So it actually represents our brokenness. The other thing, too, is they were tiny. They were, they were teeny little angels on top of the ark, their wings were covered over their heads and their bodies, so you really could only see wings. And only one person went into the Holy of Holies one time a year, and when he went in, he was producing so much smoke from his sensor, he wouldn't have been able to see anything anyways. The point is, it would have never misled anybody. Between the smallness of it, the wings covering it, one person going in once a year and all the smoke, it would have never been an image that anybody ever saw, period where, yes, it's still kind of true that nobody would have ever seen the cherubim that Solomon was building, 
But at the same time, why is he building them? If nobody ever sees them, why is he building them? Their wings are spread out, so they're completely visible. And that would take a lot more smoke to cover them up as you go in. And the fact that the word says it overshadowed the ark. Meaning, not only is this extravagance that goes outside the will of God, but why in the world did you even build it unless he could just say, I did? That's the, probably the biggest difference between why God is having cherubim, small, and why and the difference between Solomon having cherubim, to kind of help you understand that. The poles were so long that their ends were visible from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from beyond that point. They have remained there to this very day. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets Moses had placed there in Horeb, and it was there that Yahweh made an agreement with the Israelites after he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And once the priests left the holy place, a cloud filled Yahweh's temple, and the priests could not carry out their duties. They could not carry out their duties because of the cloud, and Yahweh's glory filled the temple. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he lives in a thick darkness. Now, don't misinterpret that. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, isn't God light? And there's, well, what he means by is the storm cloud. Okay? In the, in the Psalms, God says, it says that Yahweh came in the storm and he wrapped himself in a thick darkness. But at the same time, we're told that lightning's shooting all over the place in that storm cloud. What it represents is the absolute holy of God, but most often it represents him as a judge. The only time you ever see the storm cloud is when God is coming to judge somebody or when he comes to give the law, which is judgments. So what he's referring to is probably Mount Sinai. Probably Mount Sinai. Oh Yahweh, truly I have built a lofty temple for you. That word lofty is interesting. A place where you can live permanently. Notice the language there. This is a house for you where you can live here in this actual building and you will live there permanently. Now notice the assumption that God is actually going to move into the house as if not all the creation is his and the assumption that this is where God's going to live forever. This is where you permanently will forever dwell. When I think of God living forever and ever and ever, I totally think of the temple. Then the king turned around and pronounced a blessing over the whole Israelite assembly as they stood there. And he said, Yahweh God of Israel is worthy of praise because he has fulfilled what he promised my father David. Actually, didn't you reinterpreted things and did it on your own. He told David, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen a city from all the tribes of Israel to build a temple in which to live. God never said that. He never said that I brought Israel out of Egypt to put him in a sea where I'll build a temple. He never said that. But I have chosen David to lead my people Israel. Now my father David had a strong desire, that's the more accurate statement, to build a temple to honor Yahweh God of Israel. And Yahweh told my father, David, it is right for you to have a strong desire to build a temple to honor me, which he never did. But you will not build a temple, which he got right, but your own son will build it. And that's what he misinterpreted too. Even if you translate Samuel, chapter, Second Samuel chapter 7, where God says, you will not build me a house, I will build you a house. But then he goes on and says, your son will continue this household. It never really says your son will build a temple. Your son will build a house. 
Yahweh has kept his promise he made. I have taken my father's David place and have occupied the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised. I have built this temple for the honor of Yahweh, the God of Israel, even though my house is bigger, and set up in the place of the ark contained the covenant of Yahweh made with our ancestors when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh. So he starts with a blessing or a history, a history of why he's doing this. Verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in front of the entire assembly of Israel and spread his hands toward the sky. And he prayed, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or above or on earth below. You maintain covenant loyalty. That's that word chesed. That's loyalty, unconditional love to your servants who obey you with sincerity. You have kept your word to your servant, my father David, and this very day you have fulfilled what you have promised. Now, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep the promise you made to your servant, my father David, when you said you will never fail to have a successor ruling before me on the throne of Israel. That comes from Second Samuel chapter 7. Provided that his descendants watch their step, serve me as you have done. Now, O God Israel of Israel, may the promise you made to your servant, my father David, be realized. So he's asking for God to honor his promises through his faithfulness. God does not really live on earth. Look, if the sky and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less can a temple that I have built? Wait a minute. Solomon, you just got finished saying that you've built a house for God so that you can live in it permanently. And then just mere minutes later in your speech, you write, but God cannot be contained. It's, it's, it's like he, he gets it. If you've ever noticed that, like have you ever noticed caught yourself speaking or even listening to somebody else and their desire and their bad thinking comes out and then they completely contradict themselves with good Bible verses and good theology, which means like intellectually it's been pounded in their head in Sunday school class, what is the correct theological belief? But their desires and their wishful thinking are so much more powerful than the theology that they say something contradicts it. But because everything else is rote memory, they, they say it. And so they say their rote memory of theology has been pounded into them since a kid. But then they say something else that completely contradicts it because that's their desire. But the desire is so strong and the memorization is so just ununderstanding, non-understanding that they don't even realize they're contradicting themselves. They don't really even realize they're contradicting themselves. It's like when we talk about like, oh, I can't wait to escape this world of suffering evil where I'll go to heaven and everything will be great and, and God's just going to nuke the planet anyways. And then we start reading about the book of Revelation where God's going to restore the earth and come to the kingdom here and the resurrection. And it's like, wait a minute. Those two things completely contradict each other. But we don't put them together. We don't put it together until you have that aha moment. That's exactly what he just did. It's exactly what he just did. Which means his theology is good, but his execution and understanding of it, how, how it um, plays out in life, is not good. Theology and memorization means nothing without understanding and application. But respond favorably to your servant's prayer. And his request for help, O Yahweh my God, answer the desperate prayer your servant is presenting to you today. Night and day, may you watch over this temple, the place where you promised you would live. He never promised that. 
May your answer, may you answer your servant's prayer for this place. Respond to the requests of your servant and your people, Israel, for this place. Hear from inside your heavenly dwelling place and respond favorably. Notice how many times he says place, this place. Bless this place. Stay in this place. Answer the prayers for this place. It's reductionist theology. He's reducing God to this place. Even though he just said God is not contained, he keeps talking about this containment, this containment, this containment. Verse 31, when someone is accused of sinning against his neighbor and the latter pronounces a curse on the alleged offender before your altar in this temple, he be willing to forgive the accused of the accusation is false. So first he says, I pray for justice on earth. I pray that our court systems would all be just. I pray that you would dwell with us that no crimes are left unpunished and people are not falsely punished. Listen from heaven and make a just decision about your servant's claims. Condemn the guilty party, declare the other innocent, and give both of them what they deserve. The time will come when your people Israel are defeated by an enemy because they sin against you. If they come back to you and renew their allegiance to you and pray for your help in this temple, then listen from heaven, forgive this sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land that you gave their ancestors. So now he's going back to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy didn't say, if you disobey me and go into exile. Moses said, when you disobey me and go into exile. And Solomon at least paid attention to that part of Deuteronomy. Remember one of the requirements of the king was copy the book of Deuteronomy. So at least he's reading it. But notice he says, when we come back and pray in this temple, as if somehow praying in the temple makes the prayer a little bit better. The time will come when the skies are shut up tightly and no rain falls because your people sinned against you. That was a covenant cursing, which we will see when we get to Elijah. When they direct their prayers toward this place, renew their allegiance to you and turn away from their sin because you punished them. Then listen from your heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Certainly you will then teach them the right way to live and send rain on your land and you will give in your people possession. So he's praying for restoration. He knows the sin is coming. The time will come when the land suffers from famine, plague, blight, disease, or a locust invasion. And when the enemy lays a siege to the cities and the land, or when the stone over other, or some other type of plague or epidemic occurs, when all your people Israel pray and ask for help as they acknowledge their pain and spread out their hands toward the temple, then listen from your heavenly dwelling place. Notice he's quoting temple in heaven. When they spread their hands toward the temple, listen from heaven. Which one is it, Solomon? Forgive their sins and act favorably towards each one based on your evaluation of his motives. Indeed, you are the only one who can correctly evaluate the motives of all people. Then they will obey you throughout their lifetime as if they live in the land you gave to their ancestors. This is a summary of everything we're going to be reading in Kings. This is what's coming. It's so ironic that the dedication of the temple is about the destruction of Israel. Nobody's like, when you're first getting married and they're like dedicating your marriage and blessing and like, so when that day comes and you're all yelling and screaming at each other and you're getting divorced and all that kind of stuff, may God like somehow bring you back together and bless your marriage. Like, who? nobody talks that way. 
But that's what he's talking about. This is all about sin and exile and destruction. You're like, I thought this is a dedication of the, the place of God. What, what, what led him to say stuff like that? 41. Foreigners who do not belong to your people. Well, it was probably God. That's, I mean, that's, that was the unspoken in implication at that point. Foreigners who do not belong to your people, Israel, will come from a distant land because of your reputation. When they hear about your great reputation, your ability to accomplish mighty deeds, they will come and direct their prayers toward the temple. Then listen from your heavenly dwelling place and answer all the prayers of the foreigners. Then all the nations of the earth will acknowledge your reputation, obey you like your people Israel do, and recognize that this temple I built belongs to you. Now notice the inclusion of the foreigners. This is huge too, because this is the main point of the whole entire Bible. So that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. And we've seen how in the book of Samuel, foreigners often responded better to God than the people of Israel did. And in the book of Kings, we're going to see foreigners responding better than the people of Israel do. And when we get to the prophets, they will make it very clear that Israel is the foreigners, so to speak. It's whoever responds in faith. But we'll talk about that when we get the prophets. When you direct your people to march out and fight their enemies, they direct their prayers to Yahweh toward the chosen city and his temple. I built for your honor. Then listen from heaven to their prayers for help and vindicate them. Over and over he keeps from the temple to the temple to the temple. The time will come when your people will sin against you, for there is no one who is sinless. And you will be angry with them and deliver them over to their enemies who will take them as prisoners to their own land. Whether far away, closer by, when your people come to their senses in the land where they are held prisoner, they will repent and beg for your mercy in the land of imprisonment, admitting we have sinned and gone astray. We have done evil. When they return to you with all their heart and being in the land where they are held prisoner, and direct their prayers to you towards the land that you gave their ancestors and their chosen city and the temple I built for your honor, then listen from the heavenly dwelling place to their prayers for help and vindicate them. Forgive all the rebellious acts of the sinful people and cause their captors to have mercy on them. After all, they are your people and your special possession whom you brought out of Egypt from the middle of the iron smelting furnace. You notice how many times he says praying towards the temple. That sounds like Islam. The need to pray towards Mecca and the Kaaba. Nowhere has God ever directed the prayers of the people towards a certain direction or a location or an object. Nowhere has he done that. That's Solomon's theology. And it's very interesting. You almost get the sense that there's Solomon really emphasizing the temple is the key, the temple is the key. Yet the Spirit of God is like manipulating his speech. And it's all about the temple doesn't really matter. In the end, you will be a sinful, disobedient people and go into exile. In the end, it will be me who brings you back. The temple has nothing to do with any of that. The temple does not secure their obedience. It does not secure their safety. It does not secure the repentance. May you be attentive to your servants and your people Israel's requests for help, and may you respond to all their prayers to you. After all, 
You picked them out of all the nations of the earth to be your special possession, just as you, O sovereign Yahweh, announced through your servant Moses when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt. When Solomon finished presenting all these prayers and requests to Yahweh, he got up from before the altar of Yahweh when he had, where he had kneeled and spread out his hands toward the sky. And we stood up, he pronounced a blessing over the entire assembly of Israel, saying in a loud voice, Yahweh is worthy of praise because he has made Israel his people secure, just as he promised. Not one of all the faithful promises he made through his servant, Moses, is left unfulfilled. May Yahweh our God be with us, and as he was with our ancestors, may he not abandon us or leave us. May he make us submissive so that we can follow all of his instructions and obey the commandments of rulers and regulations he commanded our ancestors. May Yahweh our God be constantly aware of these requests of mine I have presented to him so he might vindicate his servant, his people Israel, as the need arises. Then all the nations of all the earth will recognize that Yahweh is the only genuine God. And may you demonstrate a wholehearted devotion to Yahweh our God by following his rules and obeying his commands as you are presently doing. That last two paragraphs, that's it. There's no mention of the temple, and everything Solomon said was dead on straight good theology. That last part is an echo of what God came in and said, Remember, obey me, and then it will go well for you. And I will be faithful to return you. That last, he, he, at least he ended it well. <laughs> he ended it well in his speech. These chapters is where we've seen Solomon's heart is divided. It is in the following chapters now that we see everything goes downhill now. Everything goes downhill. I think that's also interesting now, this isn't like an ironclad argument, and it's not like a total bullet point, but I do find it very interesting that the temple building is the pivot between Solomon at least being okay and then going into total paganism and disobedience to God. I think it's very interesting that it is only after the temple, and now I'm not saying there's a direct correlation, but the narrator has strategically placed the temple in his account I'm not saying the temple is what caused Solomon to become a pagan, but the temple, the narrator places the temple right at the pivot where Solomon goes pagan. And it almost is like the narrator is making the point that the temple didn't make them more godly. The temple did not make them more godly. It did not become this magical golden paradise that all the people got on board with God. And just like everything Solomon said, you will sin and you will go into exile. Verse 62, The king and all Israel were with him, presenting sacrifices to Yahweh. Solomon offered peace offerings to Yahweh, 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of blood. And the king and all the Israelites dedicated Yahweh's temple, and that day the king consecrated the middle of the courtyard that is in front of the Yahweh's temple, and he offered their burnt sacrifices, grain offerings, and fat from the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that stood before Yahweh was too small to hold all these offerings. At that time, Solomon and all of Israel with him celebrated a festival before Yahweh our God for two entire weeks. This great assembly included people from all over the land, from Lebo Hamath and the north of the brook of Egypt to the south. 
this festival is most likely the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, which is all about the atonement of the sins of Israel so that God will dwell with them for another year. On the 15th day after the festival started, to miss the people, they asked God to empower the king and they went to their homes happy and content because of all the good that Yahweh had done for his servant David and his people. 